But what we're going to be hitting on tonight, I want to give you three points because uh, these three points are going to be important to how we understand the message and then also how we're going to apply it. So the first point is going to be what how I would sum up this section in Exodus. Exodus 1 through 15. This is kind of a long title. I will explain it, so please bear with me. This is, and this isn't my own title. But Exodus 1 through 15 can be summed up in this. It's God's glory in saving his people through judgment. So the theme you can walk away with if you don't hear anything else tonight is that God gets glory in saving his people through judging his enemies. So short, God's glory and salvation through judgment, if that's any shorter. Uh, and I want to be able to walk through that because one thing these things have presented to us and has challenged, I think, anybody who has done any one of these studies is as you walk through Scripture, God's Word really keeps us in check about what we're able to talk about and what we're not. And part of that is you're going to get some of this and it's just going to be it's just going to be theology. It's just going to be, well, what does God have to say? And we want to be balanced in how we do that. We don't want to come to Scripture and simply tell you what the text says, and then you go home, and it doesn't mean anything for you in your life. But at the same time, for the Word to mean anything in your life, you actually have to know what it says. If you want God to be in it, if you want God, you want to walk and commune with God, well, you've got to know who that God is. And so... We're going to hopefully balance that out tonight. So point one is going to be that. It's going to be what is the main point, the whole theology of this section. It's going to be that. God's glory and saving his people through judgment. And hopefully we can spend actually the shorter amount of time going through that. And then I want to press on two points of application that I will actually hit on as we get done with this because I want to save it. So if you're looking um, at the Bible with me, uh, Exodus chapter 1, we're going to be going through 1 to 15. Got to hold on because we're going to go fast and we're not going to hit every single verse in this. I've been praying on what to talk about through these verses and I'm hoping that what I have down is, is what the Lord wanted down and he'll honor it and bless it. So Exodus 1. Verse 1, if you open up your Bibles, look there with me, and we're going to start right there. So Exodus chapter 1. And so you've got to think, because we are English, most of us, whether we're English-speaking, Spanish-speaking first, it doesn't matter. We all have a mentality that the people who would have originally heard the Bible, especially the Old Testament, which was Hebrew in nature, it was written to a, a people who spoke it, who lived it, long, long time ago. And so the, we often hit new sections of the Bible the same way we have a devotional or whatever, and we just have this complete separation of things in our minds. And so as we're coming into Exodus, you got to think everything you have heard in Genesis is going to flow right into this. This is a story. So imagine that all you did within the last week is you hit the pause button you went and got a snack for a week long, and now you're coming back to watch the rest of it unfold. you got to start thinking of it somewhat like that. Because this is not just, okay, that's Genesis, and now Exodus, now it's something new. Well, yes, it's going to be new as far as its content, but it's going to be the same story. So I want you to have that in mind as, as we're starting this. This isn't something completely off the cuff. This isn't going to be, uh, you know, 
just coming out of nowhere what we're going to read. So Exodus 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, and Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. So I hope in just those seven verses... You heard some words in there that should be already familiar to you. Things we've heard, things we've talked about, things that should get your mind kicking as far as now this story. That's why we really emphasize from the beginning that the Bible gives you things in the beginning that it's going to carry throughout the entirety of its work. There's going to be words, there's going to be phrases, there's going to be people, there's just going to be things that it wants you to know. And I was trying to explain this uh, the other day. Uh, well, I'll just say it, Manny. Me and Manny were talking about this. Of just think of this season as it's changing now. You think of fall. And I'm sure if I say fall to you or uh, you know, just thinking of a change in seasons, you automatically have pictures that come into your mind. And because we're all people who feel and are intuitive... I bet you get tastes that come to your mind. So when I think of fall, and my birthday is in November, which is the best month, I just get all of those different feelings and those, I mean, it's like I can almost smell the air different. I can see the leaves changing their colors. You can taste the pumpkin. You know, like you just, they're intuitive to you as you think about how things change and they move because that's been ingrained in you. I mean, nobody has to explain to you things of fall for you to go, well, what do you mean fall? You mean like falling? Or do you mean like fall? Or, you know, no one's got it. If I say that, if I just say fall, you get it. So the same thing with the Bible. It, it, it wants you to live and breathe at the same way you live and breathe the, the, the things of your life. The, the fall time, the summertime, your birthday, New Year, Christmas, whatever it may be that is ingrained in you as a person, the Bible wants ingrained in you as a Christian. And so we're already getting some of those same words. So look at verse 7 with me. This is a key verse. So Joseph and everybody that came before in the story, right? They had to come from the promised land because of famine. And they had to come down into Egypt because Joseph there was in part ruler next to Pharaoh. And so they've increased and they've multiplied. Joseph and that generation has died off. But what does it say of the people? It says in verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Okay, so Nick's talking last week about the promise. Well, what was part of the promise? Part of the promise was land and people. Land means nothing without a people. And so we have this promise that we heard in Genesis that we, we got to the end of and we're like, it doesn't look like it's, it's like what we talked about last week. It looks so far off that only blind faith is going to perceive it, right? They don't have what me and you have. They, they don't have the fulfilling of the story. 
They have the promise and they're only looking ahead and it's, it's far off. It is distant. And now it seems like it's being brought to fruition. It says the people of Israel, they're fruitful, they're increasing greatly, they've multiplied, they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And obviously we know this isn't the right land. It's not the land they were promised and yet they are multiplying and exceedingly strong. And where have we heard that language before? Where have we heard the language of be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it? We've heard that just in Genesis. We heard that right at the beginning of the book. That the intention for mankind was to grow, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the entire earth. And so the whole promise being carried forward were, that they were awaiting was there is going to come one who was going to do what Adam and Eve in the garden originally failed to do. And that one is going to come, as the Bible puts it in its terms, the seed of the woman or the offspring of the woman is going to come and he's going to do that. He is going to do that. And so now the people of Israel, through whom that person is coming, that Savior is going to come, that Messiah is going to come, now the people of Israel are being shown to be the outworking and fulfilling of that very promise. Why? They are being fruitful, they are increasing, they are multiplying, and they are growing. And so already, Exodus wants you to think the promise is being fulfilled still. Even though they're in a distant and foreign land, the promise is being fulfilled. So look back with me at, at, at Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's stores, store cities, Pithom and Ramesses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dwelt, dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And Pharaoh commanded all of his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So now you have a furthering of this story already in the chapter. The people are being multiplied they're exceedingly uh, growing stronger God is blessing them because through them is going to come one who is going to bless all of the families of the earth 
He's going to rule with a king's staff. And the people know this. The people of Israel know this promise. And then we get this introduction of this king from Egypt, this new king who doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't know the people of former generations. And now this king sees these people and he has no reason to think anything ill of them. It's not like it says, you know, there's not some misdetail. Israel was just being so oppressive to the Egyptian people that the Egyptians really just wanted to oppress them back. God was simply blessing them. And then you have this one from Egypt, this king, laying upon them slavery and oppression. Why? Because they fear them. They know they're growing strong. They know they're multiplying. And they are afraid that if they do so, they will turn on them and defeat them and overthrow them. And so now we've got to start thinking like this. The Bible in the beginning talked about that there's going to be this battle. There's going to be this battle from the beginning of the Bible all the way till the very end of these two seeds. There's going to be the seed of the woman, and there's going to be the seed of the serpent. And there's going to be enmity, or there's going to be battle between them. And what's going to happen between the two? The seed of the serpent is going to bruise the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman is going to come and do what? It's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. So any opposition to the ones whom God has chosen for that seed of the woman, the promised one, to come through, anybody that opposes them is their enemy, is the seed of the serpent. And so Pharaoh and his people are being presented here to you and to us, seed of the serpent. These are wicked, wicked people. And how do we know this? Kill every male firstborn from the house of Israel. Kill everyone. Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And then why do the midwives not comply with that? They feared God. And that is no light saying. They feared God. The proverb says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. And these midwives show that they don't have a fear of God that simply says it with their lips. They said it in their actions because they knew that the promised one was going to be a what? A he. In him will all the nations be blessed. Not her. And that's not to discount women. Okay, (laughs) Please don't take it like that. But there is promised a male offspring. It's going to be him who's going to bless the families of the earth. It's going to be him who is going to come and reverse the curse. Reverse the effects of the fall. He is going to be the one whom the obedience of not only his own people, but all of the nations is going to come. And they know this, and they're here in Pharaoh, and they're saying, that's seed of the serpent. That's seed of the serpent, and they don't obey. Yes, they lie, and they, I think, righteously do so, because we know that God blesses them, and God says, gives them families. And so, right here at the beginning... We have what is going to be the rest of our time in Exodus. In chapter 1, it's like you have this mini 
scene of what is going to be the, the, the entirety of the first half of Exodus. It is going to be this battle royale between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, which means it's going to be a battle between Israel and the people and king of Egypt, Pharaoh. And so it's setting the scene for you right now. It's, once, it's wanting to paint it for you so you have something to view and to gaze. And so as these things pop up, they shouldn't come up to you as just Bible stories you heard in Sunday school one day. So when we get to the rest of this, it's going to start to unfold and make sense. So first thing we have here is you have this, this uh, people that are growing they are the seed of the woman who God is blessing, who the promises are given to. That's going to bless the whole earth. And then it's going to do exactly what Nick talked about last week, that there is going to be one who comes from this group who is going to be the one to bring about all these promises. And so Exodus does this for us too. So now look at Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2 verse 1. Now a man... And I don't want to overemphasize this, but the same word for there is the same word used for Adam. Same word. So man and Adam are interchangeable, and I think it's there for a purpose. So your Bible doesn't say this and doesn't need to say this, but I almost want you to think of it like that. Now, now Adam, in some sense. Obviously, this isn't Adam. This is going to be somebody new, but just having that in mind. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came, to, came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And so the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. So, the, so Exodus opens up with a group of people being blessed by God. And now it is no coincidence that the very next thing that happens is there is one among these Hebrew people, among the Israelites, who is seen as blessed. So there's this son, right? There's this boy who is born, and he has this divine protection from the Lord, right? He, he would, it, we're getting the, this imagery that the, the reason that uh, he had to be put into this, you know, this like almost you can think of it almost it's like this mini ark. He had to be put into this was for his own safety, for his own salvation, because all the all the male children were, were, were being killed and being slaughtered. And so it is no coincidence that Moses pops up here. It's not just something random. Moses is is, is being seen here as this child who has been divinely given by God 
and who is being protected and placed in this very ark-like structure. And he is being saved through the waters. And then you read right at the end that she names him Moses because I drew him out of the water. And so this very same language is used back in Genesis talking about Noah. Very same thing. Noah made an ark out of using bitumen and pitch. And so now you see this child from this Hebrew people being put in this, like I said, this mini ark. It's like this retelling of the story of the flood and, and God bringing about judgment. And yet through that judgment, now there's coming this one who seems to be the one who's going to bring all these great promises to pass. He's kept alive. And his name signifies it. He's been drawn out of water. And all you got to do is think of, man, when we get to the Exodus at the end of this, you're going to understand what it means to be drawn out of water. And so we have this group of people, and now we got this singular person now, Moses, who seems to be the one that they've been awaiting for. He seems to be the one. He seems to be the promised seed of the woman who's going to come and bring all of these promises to pass. But we know that's obviously not going to be the end of this story. As we look through the rest of this chapter, as Moses grows up and gets older, and he's in Pharaoh's household, it says that he looks out upon his people. He knows who his people are, and he sees the oppression of, of Pharaoh in Egypt against his people. And so he goes out and he avenges them. It says he strikes one of them down. And then when he goes out to his own people to sort of be the savior of his people, they're like, yeah, I know who we are. You're the, you're the guy who killed that Egyptian man. And he flees. And so it's like, it's like, boom, you get this high and then you get this immediate crash. It's just like, we thought this was him. We thought this was the guy. We thought this was the one. But God in his mercy and his grace is going to show that it's obviously not the end of the story. It's not where this is going to end. And we know this is the case because in chapter 2, after all this has taken place, as Moses is seen to be this failed savior, right? he, he tries to help his people, and yet he ends up killing a man and fleeing. We read in Exodus 2, beginning in verse 23, it says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and this is key, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And God didn't just know, because God is all-knowing. It's an obvious fact. God knew the plight of his people because he was in relationship with his people. His people's slavery, his people groans and cries for help, reach up to him almost like a fragrant offering to which he then hears and sees his people. And so God seeing and God knowing is not for God's sake. It's for us. It's for them. God knowing and God seeing the plight of his people is to remind us that we are very, very prone to think God doesn't see and that God doesn't know and that he does. He knows intimately well, not only their pains and their groanings, but his people. 
And so in chapter 3, Moses is not done yet. God is not done. In chapter 3, God appears to Moses. And this is probably one of the most well-known parts of the Bible of Moses and the burning bush. And so here you see almost this redemption of this seed. He seems to have failed. He's fled. And now here comes God redeeming this one who he is going to use to save his people. So if you look at chapter 3, I'm going to begin in verse 13. God has just revealed himself to Moses as this holy God. And Moses recognizes that God is holy. And so he says this to God. He says in verse 13, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, Well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on on your sons and your, on your daughters. And you shall plunder the Egyptians. <coughs> and so God gives this amazing call now to Moses. In, in one way redeeming him from his his failure to try to redeem his own people by his own hand. Now it's not going to be by the strength and the might of Moses waging war against his own Egyptians that he was among. Rather, it's going to be the voice of God through Moses. And it is going to be only that the words that Moses speaks that is going to have any effect upon what is going to happen and any kind of effect that is going to have upon the salvation of his people. And so God is now calling Moses, and by doing so, calling the people of Israel to something completely new. This is this brand new movement in the plan and the story of God. Because he says, Say to this people, the Lord, the God of your fathers, this is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations by this name because of what I'm going to do. What is going to happen is going to completely change how they are to view God and how they're to worship God. Now they're, they're, they're to call upon God. And that's going to be continually fleshed out as, as he keeps going through 
uh, the promises that he's going to bring about for these people in the rest of this chapter and going into chapter 4. And he's going to give these people signs. And he's going to show them, look, what if the people say to me, who is this God? What signs is he, is, is he going to give you? And so he's going to give Moses, he's going to give Moses through his own mouthpiece, Aaron, all of these signs. And he says, you're going to be to those people as God and your brother is going to be to them as a prophet for you. Why? Because my very words are going to come forth from, from Aaron's mouth and from your mighty outstretched hand. And it is going to be as if God himself has visited this judgment upon these Egyptians through you. And so we get that through these two chapters moving into chapter 4. And so if you look at verse 21 with me, chapter 4, verse 21, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So the final thing that he gives to Moses and to Aaron before they go to Pharaoh and to the people is to remind them of this. Look, I'm telling you beforehand, they're going to reject these signs and wonders that are going to come from my hand through yours. And you're to tell them, we are God's son. And because of that reason... You are to let us go. And so God gives them a reason for this redemption. Israel is called God's son. And so this son, this, this him who we've been waiting for, who's going to bring about these promises, is now seen in the people of Israel. Israel as one, as a whole, is God's son. And to have them in bondage in Egypt is to have them in in direct contradiction and in direct line with God's very own people. And so he tells him, you tell Pharaoh, that's my son, and you better let him go to serve me, or I'm going to kill your firstborn son. And this is no simple threat from God. This is not God in some bartering match with an equal. God is warning them, just as he's warned everybody up to this point, that if anyone who honors Abraham's offspring, his son, they will be honored as well. They will be blessed as well. But anybody that comes in opposition to this son, he will curse them and he will wipe them off the face of the earth. They will be shown no mercy. They will be shown no grace as they oppose God through God's son. And that is clear as day to Moses and to Aaron. And they are to tell Pharaoh that because Pharaoh is being told right now to them, he is not going to let my people go. So whatever you have to wrestle through to think about that, don't care. But this is for sure. God demands that his son be his son to worship him. He wants him to worship him. So God is going to do by any means necessary to make that happen. And he's going to show that this seed of the serpent is actually nothing but God's own handiwork in history where he is 
using them to display his power and his glory and his might in order to save his people. Or like we said, what the point of this section is going to be, this is going to be God's display of him saving a people through judgment. And that's where it caps off for Moses. Moses now has the call. The people have a call. And as he delivers this to the people, and this is such a great line too. So Moses and Aaron, they go down to the people. They're gathering all the elders in. It's like this it's like this huddle. It's like, I don't know how you would tell people that after you just heard it. You're like, wow, that's kind of weighty. So he gathers them here and he says, look, this is what the Lord says. And then in 31, right at the end of chapter 4, verse 31, he says, And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord has visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. And that is kind of like the cap to this little section right here. And the rest of it is now going to be, all right, this plan's been laid out, and now it's about to unfold. Or it's like you're about to see that car, you know, chase scene in the movie now where all the action happens. And so we're going to fly through this, this section because this part in the end, I think, are the most important parts. So in, in, a, in, in going through from this story from 4, in, in Exodus 5 and in Exodus 6, you, you get this um, summation of, okay, Pharaoh's been told this. They go to him and say, you ought to let the people go. What does this seed of the serpent, this enemy of God and his people do? He oppresses them more. He hears the word of God, and what effect is it upon his heart? Hatred for God. Hatred for his people. He makes their work even harder. He oppresses them harder. The people are harsher upon them. And then God, once again, comes to Moses in in chapter 6 and emphasizes over and over and over and over again the promises that he's going to bring about. I mean, you're hitting chapter 6. And hearing the same thing talked about for the fourth time. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you've ever read the Bible. And like, geez, the repetition in this is killing me. Like, I've heard you say it already. Yes, the God of my father Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob. But we are just such lazy Americans and lazy Western people that repetition to us is just nagging. But for people back then, repetition was to emphasize everything Repetition was, if you're going to forget everything, you remember this. And so he says to Moses again, they're being pressed even further. It's like, okay, great plan. Our work just got harder. They're, they're oppressing us more. More people are going to die. The, the, the foot of the enemy seems to be on our head and not the other way around. And he says to him again, says, spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to them as God Almighty. And he says, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. He says, I'm going to make myself known to you in this way now. You're going to know me as the Lord, not in the way that the fathers did, by looking ahead, longing for the day the promises are going to come. Now you're going to behold God as Lord because you're going to see it before your very eyes and you'll know me now in a way they didn't as Yahweh. You will know me like that in a way they did not. Because you're going to see the salvation literally before your eyes. So he's promising deliverance to them again because they need to hear it. They gotta, they have to hear it. 
And at the end, there in, in chapter 6, we read that Moses and Aaron and their households, these people who are growing and expanding, are Levites, they're priests. And so he's building not only a people, but he's building a priestly people. He's building a people who are going to honor him and worship him, and who are going to also guard and protect, and they are going to be key in seeing this thing come about. So in Exodus 7, this is kind of where that car scene happens. This is where all the action is going to start happening. God has told him, I'm going to judge this house of Egypt and Pharaoh. And all these plagues are going to come about. And so you have this unfolding of plague after plague after plague after plague after plague. And while I don't want to get into all the details of this, it's one displaying here this, this profound effect and realization that God is using against the Egyptians their so-called gods against them. That every plague of judgment that comes upon them is turning the idols of these false gods that they have constructed against them to show them, I am the Lord. So we have to remember that this salvation is not just for the people of Israel. When he's saving them, he says, oh, I'm going to let the Egyptians are going to know I'm the Lord too. They're going to know it in a different way. They're going to know it through judgment. They're going to come to know who Yahweh is through judgment. And so every one of these is for them to say, yeah, you know what? You know what? Yahweh created the Nile. Yahweh is the one who's blessed us with crops. Yahweh is the one who's given us rain. Yahweh is the one who has given us cattle. Yahweh is the one who has given us sons. See, Israel is, is not new in this. Everyone had a... I mean, and even today. Don't be fooled by this. Even today. Everybody has a God. Brothers, everybody has someone whom they worship. Or gods whom they worship. And so God's salvation, which you're going to proclaim to other people... Is also, a, a, it's not just for your sake, it's for theirs to hear, yeah, the same God I worship you know, and yet you worship false gods. And everything that you have is actually from Him and not from what you think it's from. You worship the things given to you. Yahweh is the one who gives it to you. The Lord gives it to you, and yet you worship the creation. And so these judgments are for us to hear. They're for us to hear, too, that if we don't, if we don't come under Yahweh, if we don't come under the Lord... In his, in, in his people, and his son, we are under the same pronouncement and judgment as Egypt. We're going to know who the Lord is. You'll know who he is. You're just going to know him a different way. And so these plagues are overturning everything the Egyptians knew. Everything. It's, a, it, it's, it's flipping their whole world upside down. Just like the Bible is the people, the people of God's world... So these judgments are like flipping their Bible on top of their heads and showing it to be nothing. And so every judgment is a building upon this. And you even see that some of the Egyptian magicians can mimic some of what Yahweh does. Right? So for the first couple, you see they're trying to mimic Yahweh. Right? They're like, look at our gods too. They ate your snakes. We turned the water into, into blood and... 
did all these different things. But you get to not not even four plagues in, you get to the third plague. And it says this, The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. And so there were gnats on man and beast. And the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. And so, let's not make any mistake about this. What is being dealt with here in Exodus through these plagues, now to the end of Exodus, the end of what we're going to get to today, 7 through 11. <laughs> well, make no mistake, this is not simply a battle between flesh and blood. Even in the Old Testament, this is not just one people waging war against another people. These are demonic, satanic, cosmic powers at battle here. These are spiritual matters going on in these sections. So much so that we ought to just take it at face value that Pharaoh and his people are actually doing supernatural things. Because we cheapen it if we're like, no, they, I mean, yeah, you've probably seen like the movie or, you know, the, the cartoon animated version of the Exodus or whatever it's called. I don't remember what it's called. But every depiction I see because we are modern people who hate God is... It's just like they were just doing a card trick. Like it's Lance Burton just like, wada, And, you know, he turns water red. Like, whoop-de-doo. And we cheapen what it says. These magicians are no, like, Lance Burton magicians. These are people who are, they are dabbling in some wicked, in some supernaturally dark stuff. And you cheapen that if you change that. And the point of that being is, what is going on in, in these judgments is Yahweh against Satan. This is that, that same slippery snake from the garden now behind Pharaoh and the people trying to crush any hope of salvation. And so you're, you're seeing that on a grand scale. So by the time we get to the final plague, starting in Exodus 12, God institutes the Passover and in this institution, we get both the salvation and the judgment now starting to come together as one. And so if you're looking at Exodus uh, 12, you can look at verse 1. I'm going to read to 13. Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then you shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in the water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. 
It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now that one should jump out. This final plague is no joke. This final plague is a warning to the people that God demands there to be the sacrifice and the shedding of blood if there is going to be any remission, any cleansing, any release of wrath. There must be blood shed. And the judgment that awaits these Egyptians is that the firstborn from every house, from Pharaoh to the poorest man, is going to be the killing of that firstborn. And the sign of this is not simply going to be physical. It is going to be a judgment upon the gods of Egypt of their failure to protect their very own line that Israel is looking for their own line. They're looking for sons and they're looking for a son. And Egypt is no different. Different gods, different gospel, different salvation, and yet one is going to be saved, the other one's going to be destroyed, and he's going to make a fool of these gods to show them they are not gods because they are not able to bring about what they promise. But what is key here is that Israel is not special because they're Israel. They needed blood. They needed for God's own wrath to be averted from them. And so he warns them, you need to put the blood over your, lint your, your lintels of your house so that I'll pass over you. No one in Egypt's going to get out of life unless there's the blood. None. No one's getting out of this judgment that's going to come to pass. And so Israel is not special because they're Israel. And God's going to tell them later when this generation dies off, I didn't choose you because you were great among the nations. You were slaves. I chose you because I wanted to make you my own. I chose you because you were little amongst the world. You were nothing. You yourselves were dirty and blemished, and yet I made you clean. So God's judgment that's going to come about here is noting this. The problem of being seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, God's son versus God's enemy, does not lie simply in your physical traits. It does not lie in who you're born from. God's wrath will come upon you, Jew and non-Jew alike. It'll come upon the one who is not inwardly a son of God. Who does not inwardly believe the promises of God. And who does not take God's name seriously when he said there must be blood for me to pass over you. <coughs> so in 27 of chapter 12, 
He says this, You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. What's the refrain we're getting again? And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. This separation of Israel from Egypt, from the blood without blood, was to show the very thing that he says in 11, in verse 7. But not a dog shall growl against any of my people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. See, God's saving his people is to make a distinction not simply between the people, but simply between those who love God and those who don't love God. For those who hate God and for those who love him and who love everything that God is. And so the tenth plague passes. And the firstborn of Egypt are killed. The cry it talks about goes out in the night of women weeping for their, for their sons that are dead. And Pharaoh tells them to take up and to leave. And the people exit. They exodus. They leave. And so before you get this great leaving of the people, you, before you get this great exodus, before you get this great salvation under God's own hand, you get death. You get death on a scale you could not imagine. And so by, by the time we get to Exodus 14, the climax of the story is now here. And the people are about ready to be free from this seed of the serpent, this enemy of God. And Pharaoh, in his hardness of heart and his hatred towards God, in one last defiant move against God and against his people, says, I will not have it. And so in, in chapter 14, verse 10, it says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, it is because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And the Lord will fight for you. And you only have to be silent. So you can see right there why Israel needed the blood too. They have salvation at their fingertips. And their cry to Moses and to God is, Why have you brought us out here to die? Would we have not been better off back in Egypt? Or at least we would have had graves. And Moses says, don't worry. Don't fear. Because God's going to do the work, not you. And the Egyptians whom you see, this enemy before you today, you're not going to see again. And then at the end of 14, it says this, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. 
And Israel saw that the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. And then in 15, this is one of the most beautiful texts of Scripture. The Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered him. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. And the enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. And I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. And you blew with your wind. And the sea covered them. And they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people from you have redeemed. And you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountains. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Amen. That whole chapter, if you don't see in your own Bibles, is a song simply of praise for what God has just done to the people's enemies. And so we have that picture there. God's beautiful, amazing glory and salvation, judging His enemies. This salvation has now been made known to His people in front of their very eyes. They are seeing dead Egyptians wash up on the seafloor. He's judged them. Which leads me to my last two points. What does this have to actually do with you? What does this have to do with us now? See, the Bible talks about that these things written in the Old Testament are actually written for us. Yes, it's a great, amazing story, and it's a fantastic song of worship at the end, but what does it actually mean for us? In Jude verse 5, if you want to flip to Jude verse 5, Scripture speaks of the Exodus in relationship to one who was going to come and save his people. Jude's right at the end of your Bible, right before Revelation. Jude verse 5, he says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. 
So I did warn that it would be a mix of salvation through judgment. While Exodus ends right there on a, what seems to be the pinnacle of a high note in the Old Testament, we are reminded that the Exodus was done by no other than Jesus Christ himself of saving a people. And yet, those who did not believe were judged. Even the seed of the woman who did not have faith were judged. And so God is defining, I think, these two things of what the Exodus ought to produce in your heart and what ought to be the result of reading something like this, since it was written for you, is this. The point of God saving His people through judgment is not simply to save them. It is to save them unto something, and it's for them to be saved unto worship. That refrain all throughout Exodus, which I, I admit even in my own study, my, my own reflections on the text, I have just breezed over, and yet the refrain pops up over and over and over again in Exodus. And it is always missed that the people, upon the revelation and glory of God, judging people, literally killing them before their eyes, and saving them is that they would worship. And so worship is our end. Not just exodus. Worship is our end. And so God is actually telling us now what salvation really is. Because here's, here's the thing. If the people saw all of those judgments, if they saw the very hand of God move before them, I mean, they had people wash up dead at their feet that they, they had been fleeing from. And yet God saw fit to judge them because they did not have faith, then salvation cannot simply be you having some kind of experience. It could not even simply be you being here tonight and simply sitting among the reading of the word, of praying to God, of seeing his people. That is not salvation either. God may bring you out of a lot. He may bring you out of even greater bondages than simply slavery in Egypt. You see, Exodus really is a picture of what Jesus was going to come and do and release people out of slavery to sin. But if you haven't been released from that kind of slavery, it doesn't matter what God releases you from. It doesn't matter what kind of oppression you're released from. It doesn't matter what God takes from you to make you free from some kind of sin or idol in your life. You, like a good Egyptian, will just replace it with another God. Salvation is not simply being under the experience of God, in the people of God, nor saying with your lips things you believe about God. Salvation is knowing that God has actually redeemed you with an outstretched hand from your love of sin. And let me ask you this question. Do you think Israel, after seeing the Egyptians wash up on the seashore, had to ask themselves if they were free? They say, I wonder if it's over. I wonder if we've been freed from slavery now. Of course not. They, it's, it's there. There's no more questions. So songs of worship and praise go up. And let's ask you this. Do you know within your own heart that you've been freed from sin? 
Because it will not be a question for you in the day of God's salvation and judgment. See, at the end of the book, Revelation talks about that the people of God will uplift songs of praise to the one whom they know saved them. Who they know have been freed from the bondage of that slippery serpent and all of his people and the enemies of God. It will not be a question. And so salvation is actually being defined for us throughout the rest of the book. And we're, gonna not, we're not going to get very far in the coming weeks to realize Israel needs more than simply to be released out of bondage in Egypt. And you do too. Don't be fooled by what even we have here in America that says that if I'm in church or that if I do the right things or that if I keep up traditions or even that if I clean my life up, God is going to accept me. He will not. He saved, Jesus himself saved the people out of Egypt and yet he still judged those who were in unbelief because they did not cling to the promises of God. And so if you want salvation, it's got to come through judgment. And it's got to come through the hand of the Lord. And it's got to come upon you dying to sin and you coming up out of those waters raised as a new creature. Sin cannot have its chains upon your heart. It cannot have dominion over your members. And this is why That refrain in there is worship, worship, worship. The end of Exodus is for them to worship. It is for them to sing out praises to God of what He's done. It's to call out upon God for Him judging their enemies and them being saved for those things. And it will be for you. You will call upon the name of the Lord and say, Lord, you have saved me from my idols. You have purged me from my sin. You have released me from bondage to things I love that you hated. So your experience will not amount up to that, nor any of your tradition, nor even sitting here. Worship is what God himself has made us for, saved us for, redeemed us for, and it's what he wants from you for this end and this end alone, toward God's glory and his name alone. Because it is easy to sing that praise. It is easy to sing the songs on a Sunday. And it is easy to pray and feel really good. And yet, that act of worship, all of those deeds, all of those works, are towards the end of your own feelings, are towards the end of your own desires, and are towards the end of your own name. People know how to draw up religion to think they worship gods, and yet they worship themselves. What does Pharaoh say to Moses every single time he says, I won't let him go. Ask God to bless me. Make sure you ask him to bless me. I want to make sure that if that's God, I want him to bless me. Brother, that is modern day religion. And that's modern day American Christianity. I just want to make sure that in the end, God's going to bless me. And that is not worship. Worship is towards God, for God, by God, unto God, only for his glory and not for you. And so when God saves you, when God brings you out to himself, and this is what we need here every Friday, anything that the Lord puts before us, anytime we meet here is this. We're here to worship God and God alone. 
God has actually redeemed us. He has saved us out of our own slavery to sin unto that very end. And we're also being encouraged here. And we're being challenged that, look, unless you look to Yahweh, you will be crushed. You're going to see Satan riding behind you saying, I will not have it. And he will devour you. He will consume you. You will wash up on the shore. And so you need to remember the Christian life, worship is not, man, that was a great song. It's warfare. The entirety of Exodus is spiritual warfare. It is worship in warfare. And it is praising God as enemies wash up before your feet. And so let's make our worship that very declaration. Let us not be hypocrites. Let us not be those who, though God save us from many things, and yet he still judges for our unbelief. Let us believe like the people did. They said they heard what God said. They heard what Moses said. And brothers, have we not hear what Jesus has said to us? And ought we not just say, we bowed down our heads and we worship? If that's not what you know, well, I'm here to tell you that's what you need. Because Exodus is a stark reminder. God does have good news. He does. He has it for everybody. But you will encounter that good news one way or the other. You will either encounter it through humbling yourself and finding one whose blood will allow God to pass over you, or it'll be unto your own death and your own destruction. And Exodus is calling us to seek God for who He is and to worship Him for who He is. Let's pray. Father, I just I, I think of those words that one of your own faithful wrote that in these last times you revealed to your you've you revealed yourself to us in the person of your son that you've spoken by many prophets long ago and you've acted in many different ways. Lord, I pray Exodus would be a warning to us and an encouragement to us all at the same time. You're about the business of redeeming a people. And you're also about the business of executing judgment upon any of those who may oppose you. Father, I pray we we would be aligned with our father Abraham by faith. That we would receive those blessings that stem from Jesus Christ. Pray we would not oppose him. We would not oppose your son. Lord, we ask that you would help us to worship you the way you have called us to worship and the way you have called us to honor you and you alone. Lord, may we boast in nothing that we have. May you free us from our own slavery to our sin and our pride and our lusts, thinking that we are wise and yet fools. Lord, help to number us among the people of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we, like with your people of old, would shout out to you in worship and in adoration. Lord, that we would experience that salvation today as you hold out an outstretched arm to us, that we would be saved. 
Father, please save us from thinking we can have your blessing without having you. Lord, if it be not you that we want, may we not utter vile things from our mouths. May we not ask upon blessings that we ought not deserve. May we say that blessed is the name of Yahweh, of the Lord, in him alone. We do ask that in Christ's name. Amen.